This is Labor Wave. The experiences of workplace domination shape a person's expectations and effectively circumscribe the imagination over what types of change are possible. Victories against the boss are transformative for workers. They cultivate a sense of new possibilities and openings previously viewed as impossible. The task, then, is to expand the arenas where victories take place. In this way, what may begin as a victory against landlords and project for cooperative housing contains the potential of enlarging its imaginative capacities to become the pathway where recognition is made that cooperative houses on colonized lands is insufficient and nothing less than a global revolution against settler colonial capitalist heteropatriarchy will do. We present on Labor Wave Radio today an audio essay by yours truly, Alexander Riccio. We are going on hiatus for the remainder of December and early in January. We're going to have new episodes coming out in late January and early February. So until then, we hope you enjoy this essay on imagining a better utopia, seizing spaces of revolutionary reproduction. This essay was published by the Institute for Anarchist Studies online at anarchiststudies.org. Before we get into the essay, though, we want to announce that we are one of the proud sponsors of the third opening space for the radical imagination. This is happening April 3rd through 4th in 2020 in Corvallis, Oregon at Westminster House. Full disclosure, I am one of the organizers for this annual gathering, and we have had the pleasure of reproducing audio excerpts on our show previously of various conference keynotes that include Adrian Mary Brown and Hilary Lazar and Zoe Zamudzi and uh, many others. For this year's conference, the conference organizers have released a call for presenters and this is available online at the website, which is at OregonImagines.com. I want to take this opportunity to plug the call for presenters and read a description of what the conference organizers are seeking in terms of participation and presenters. So the call for presenters reads as follows. Opening space for the Radical Imagination 3 invites us to engage in a profound critique of what seems obvious. Radical equals that goes to the root of something and to explore alternative ways of living together, producing, loving, shaping spaces and time, inhabiting the land, working, using, struggling. It is an appeal to decolonize social relations in the dominant imaginaries that justify oppression and injustice. Radical imagination is not just about dreaming alternative futures. It lures us into embodying alternatives and practices, actions, and thinking. This gathering is not like a traditional academic conference, which often mimics rigid teaching styles with a professional lecturer speaking at a passive audience. Instead, we invite participants to create a common space for what we call the radical imagination. We wish to promote experiential skill shares and workshops that go beyond such one-off activities by exploring possibilities for revolutionary healing and transformation of everything and everyone. We ask that when planning your offering that you take into account the wonderfully different body mind types and abilities of conference participants. Our core organizing committee is two people who recruit supporters and community organizers to participate in the production of this gathering. We are dedicated to creating, facilitating, and protecting spaces that nurture the power of imagining alternatives. We imagine this gathering to be an opportunity for people to begin lasting relationships with one another. To enable this, we will be making food together, dancing, singing, and hosting fun activities throughout the weekend while also holding workshops, presentations, and discussions on using our radical imagination for organizing towards social justice. We ask that you please submit your proposal to be a presenter at this conference by January 6, 2020. And again, you can find this application on the website at OregonImagines.com. 
And seeing that Labor Wave Radio is one of the sponsors of this annual gathering and that the topic is so explicitly about the radical imagination, I felt it would be fun and appropriate to do an audio version of this essay that speaks to my own particular viewpoints and arguments about why the imagination is one of our most powerful tools and vehicles for revolutionary transformation. The first half of the essay is my attempt at scaffolding a theoretical framework and argument for why the imagination matters for leftist liberation movements. The second half of the essay gets more into a concrete argument for how I believe the imagination can be materialized, and I focus most particularly on the labor movement and labor unions locally and how they can realize the radical imagination through what I call spaces of revolutionary reproduction. Seeing as there are many footnotes in this essay as well, I decided to go ahead and read the footnotes into the essay itself. So there will be some moments where I note when I'm reading a footnote and when I come back to the original essay. Please follow us on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, we also have a Facebook page and Instagram, and we really encourage people to check out our new website at laborwaveradio.com. It has all of our most recent episodes and show descriptions, and it also includes a new blog that we are going to try to continue to keep up with regularly. Imagining a Better Utopia, Seizing Spaces of Revolutionary Reproduction. Footnote 1. I am indebted to my comrades Nicholas Fisher and Liz Jonk for their invaluable feedback and insights over early drafts of this piece. All the blame, however, for any inaccuracies and limitations belong to me alone. Revolutions happen alongside massive escalations of collective imagination. Thankfully, a number of leftist thinkers are doing their part to inspire revolutionary imaginations. Among them, Walida Imarisha recognizes every effort to build a better world as an, quote, engagement in speculative fiction, end quote. And in his recent book, Four Futures, Peter Fraze tries to develop what he calls, quote, social science fiction, end quote, to stimulate the production of visionary praxis. Their efforts highlight the intrinsic speculative quality of how to bring about a revolution. In essence, Every response to this question has produced a story on how we get there, who we are, and what may come after the revolution. Facing the imagination, therefore, is a crucial task for all who desire collective liberation. Because without envisioning how the world could be, the meaning and content of revolution remains ambiguous and prevents any shared sense of what is being fought for and how to arrive there together. In this spirit, I wish to share some thoughts on why liberation movements in the United States should view utopia as a needed social idea for sustaining revolutionary energies. Footnote 4. Liberation movements, in my view, are those social efforts at dismantling white supremacy, cis-heteropatriarchy, settler colonialism, and capitalism, while also attempting to replace such systems with non-oppressive societies. Where other social justice efforts may not yet be at the point of a liberation movement, I do have hope that they can develop into such. The Battle Over Utopia Constituted power reproduces itself through concealing its own utopianism. Donald Trump's election, eerily prophesied in Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler, has generated for many a mood where utopia seems far removed. But in fact, Trump's invocation of, quote, making America great again, end quote, displays the power and immediate presence of utopian narratives. Comparing the campaign slogans of Trump and Hillary Clinton is revelatory. Trump's rhetoric promised some variety of redemption or renewal, whereas Clinton's, quote, I'm with her, end quote, was a stark promotion of the individual. Clinton's slogan was a far departure from the Democrats' recent theatrical flourishes of hope and change, buzzwords which invite the imagination to run wild. The strength of these respective catchphrases rested in their semantic flexibility as they enabled manifold personal interpretations on the types of change seen as desirable. Clinton's slogan insisted on voters identifying with the candidates specifically. While the idea of little girls feeling empowered by the presence of a woman president may seem a great inspirational tool, 
the reality is that working class women and the broader multiracial and multi-ethnic working class in general do not see themselves reflected in the successes of upper class white women. Footnote number five. The category working class today is so often regarded with suspicion, no doubt likely owing to its normative coding as a white person and male phenomenon. Amid the popularity of discourse calling for intersectional frameworks, what is clear for those that do not intuitively understand the working class to be composed of all identities is that they are not being intersectional enough. Until such an understanding of the meaning of working class becomes standard, I feel it appropriate to refer to Kianga Yamada Taylor's unequivocal statement that, quote, the working class is female, immigrant, black, and white. Immigrant issues, gender issues, and anti-racism are working class issues, and to miss this is to be operating with a completely anachronistic idea of the working class. Additionally, the category of woman used throughout this piece is not intended as self-evident. I appreciate the succinct summary provided by Holly Lewis, where she says, quote, the use of the term woman always outlines the parameters of people in a social category at a concrete point in history. It is not a description of the trials and vicissitudes of a universal gender essence, nor does it assume that the gender identity of individuals matches their social gender assignment, end quote. Back to the essay. This lack of vision in Clinton's campaign explains why less eligible Democratic voters cast their ballots in the 2016 presidential election. Footnote number seven. To be clear, political branding is not a sufficient explanatory factor in determining elections. Democratic Party policies, geared as they are toward accomplishing a neoliberal agenda, owe the bulk of the blame in the failed 2016 election. As well, notwithstanding Clinton's atrocious campaign strategy, she did still win the election by roughly 3 million votes. Of course, the United States is no democracy, therefore Clinton's clear victory in numbers did not translate to victory in practice. End footnote 7. In contrast, Trump did project a vision that appealed to voters, particularly white voters, and this vision is similar to the utopianism that lay at the founding of the United States. As put by the Puritan settler John Winthrop, the nation-state was a potential, quote, new world, end quote, and future, quote, shining city upon a hill, end quote. Such utopian vision still permeates this country, and Trump tapped into its narrative power. Implementing this view of utopia necessitated a simultaneous continental genocide of indigenous North Americans and massive importation of slave labor from sub-Saharan Africa. Its extension into today's political climate still inheres genocidal premises. Clearly, utopia in itself is not a praiseworthy concept, but rather a malleable metaphor whose meaning needs to be filled with political liberation. Trump's rise to power represents a battle over utopia where the right wing has so far proved victorious. Imagination as a prison or vehicle for liberation. Utopia seeps into the common sense of status quo ideology. David Harvey exposes how free market ideologies, with their mantras of a capable, invisible hand and view of history bending toward progress, are utopian to their core. Quote, the most effective utopians in recent times, he explains, have been those of a right-wing persuasion, end quote. But, quote, the utopian rhetoric of freedom, liberty, and markets conceals so effectively their utopian content that we often find it difficult to articulate the pattern of underlying coerced collaborations that otherwise stares us so blatantly in the face, end quote. 
Modern bureaucracy also emerged within a discourse of utopian aspirations. Organizing society through so-called rational administration, went the claim, would bring about a legibly sensible world of smooth operations and rule-bound social activity. David Graeber contends that, quote, what ultimately lies behind the appeal of bureaucracy is a sphere of play. Play is defined as the free expression of creative energies for its own sake, which can be terrifying because this open-ended creativity is also what allows it to be randomly destructive, end quote. Games, conversely, are bounded by rules with clear objectives and predictability. Following the rules in games actually allows the player the opportunity to win the game. Graver contends that, quote, Bureaucracies create games. They're just games that are in no sense fun, end quote. By understanding and obeying the rules of the game, the rules of governance by administration, players can win, in essence, at the games of life. Quote, games then are a kind of utopia of rules, end quote. The utopia of rules has become the paradigm of governmental operation and is pervasive in the administration of daily life. Indeed, bureaucracy has become so naturalized that even within liberation movements, it is inescapable. One finds evidence of this in tendencies towards contractualism, schematizing operational protocols, the creation of committees to solve the problem of too many committees, and incessant calls for meetings to accomplish these tasks. Challenging the power of right-wing utopia insists upon liberation movements to generate their own view of a society that could be. Suspicion of this call is warranted, given the bloody history of attempts to realize utopia, even of a left-wing persuasion. Footnote 16. Elsewhere, I've identified this as emblematic of views which conflate utopia exclusively to its blueprint inflection, where the pathway to completing history accords to a prescribed set of necessary events or stages of development to complete the utopian project. In this way, the late liberal philosopher Karl Popper described utopia as the totalitarian demand to, quote, dominate or prostrate yourself, end quote. Another view of utopia can be found in what I call its prefigurative inflection, which offers more promise for democracy and autonomy while counteracting the authoritarian tendencies coupled with utopian aspirations. End of footnote. Yet, without a vision of a world worth striving for, how is it genuinely possible to sustain revolutionary energy? How can liberation movements become attractive enough to build an expanding base of ordinary people needed to abolish existing power structures? Utopia, through stimulating the radical imagination, is possibly one of the most powerful tools for liberation. Generating such a utopia needs to employ a radical imagination which is not afraid and indeed insists upon a full social revolution against the totality of capitalism. Footnote number 17. A crucial distinction must be made here in regards to what I call capitalist totality. Raj Patel and Jason Moore have preferred to use the term, quote, capitalist world ecology, end quote. And what their term in my own seeks to highlight is how the project of capitalism seeks to be total and spread in a totalizing fashion through domination of, quote, frontiers. I do not suggest that all social action against capitalism is hopeless because of its totalizing attempts. In fact, I make the exact opposite argument throughout this work. Think of it as an open totality with cracks and ruptures opening spaces within the totality. End of footnote. If liberation movements do not generate a more inspiring utopia, they will continue to be defeated by the utopian projects of the right wing and the powerful. On this point, Adrian Mary Brown says it beautifully, quote, We are in an imagination battle. Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown and Renisha McBride and so many others are dead because in some white imagination, they were dangerous. And that imagination is so respected that those who kill based on an imagined radicalized fear of black people are rarely held accountable. Imagination has people thinking they can go from being poor to a millionaire as part of a shared American dream. Imagination turns brown bombers into terrorists and white bombers into mentally ill victims. Imagination gives us borders, gives us superiority, gives us race as an indicator of ability. I often feel I am trapped inside someone else's capability. I often feel I am trapped inside someone else's imagination. 
and I must engage my own imagination in order to break free. End quote. within and against capitalist totality. How can liberation movements come together to share in utopian dreaming? Fairly common to hear among activists is the desire to move beyond sectarianism or petty infighting among the broad left. While such is a desirable goal, it appears to me that the essential challenge for liberation movements is not sectarian habits, but overcoming fragmentation. Needed now is the creation of spaces with accessible entry points and adaptable, self-reproducing structures for sustaining revolutionary energy. I call these spaces of revolutionary reproduction. Footnote. Inspiration for this concept derives from Silvia Federici's analyses on social reproduction, primarily as the forms of unpaid domestic work disproportionately harbored by women as the necessary precondition for capitalist production and thus the glue that binds together the entire fabric of society. Therefore, the spaces I envision are ones which enable the reproduction of social life via participation in revolutionary struggle. End of footnote. At root, change happens on an everyday basis, and in everyday life, many people are mired in the struggle for survival amid an onslaught of violence structured by white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, and settler colonialism. Chiseling out spaces for imaginative dreaming requires liberation movements to contest everyday struggles. For many, the daily suffering experienced under capitalism and the fight against it is only bearable by envisioning and working toward a humane society. Muses Robin D.G. Kelly, quote, Sometimes I think the conditions of daily life, of everyday oppressions, of survival, not to mention the temporary pleasures accessible to most of us, render much of our imagination inert, end quote. Making space to dream instigates desires for excitement, thrills, and inspiration while exposing capitalism's false claims of satisfying these desires. Capitalism maintains hegemony in part by rendering labor invisible, such as the labor of care workers undertaken primarily by women of color from the global south. Magical thinking on how social life is produced and reproduced also undermines movement organizing. So often the hours of work and social labor that go into organizing a lecture, march, campaign, or direct action get taken for granted by spectators and participants not involved in the planning. Small wonder that organizers appear pressed and unimaginative when asked how to change the world because they're exhausted. Imagine what could happen if organizers and activists, through their participation in liberation movements, had their energies replenished instead of sapped. How might it be possible to participate in revolutionary struggle while simultaneously having one's total needs met? I often like to ruminate on the possibility of creating a space where one could engage in a spirited debate, help plan a protest, and do their laundry at the same time. Let's attempt to sketch a strategic path toward making this fantasy a reality. Capitalist totality is a spatial and temporal process of organizing society, whereby, quote, accumulation by dispossession, end quote, is a grounded logic. Footnote. 
David Harvey defines accumulation by dispossession as the, quote, commodification and privatization of land and the forceful expulsion of peasant populations, conversion of various forms of property rights, common, collective, state, etc., into exclusive private property rights, suppression of rights to the commons, commodification of labor power, and the suppression of alternative indigenous forms of production and consumption, colonial, neo-colonial, and imperial processes of appropriation of assets, including natural resources, monetization of exchange and taxation, particularly of land, the slave trade, and usury, the national debt, and most devastating of all, the use of the credit system as a radical means of accumulation by dispossession." End quote, an end footnote. Owing to this, the present situation of capitalism has resulted in a wholesale shrinking of public space and near depletion of commonly held resources, both material and immaterial. Yet capitalist totality is not a complete project. One should understand it as an open totality as capitalism seeks to be a totalizing force. Inherent in its operations are cracks which offer the opportunities for potential ruptures against its power. Footnote. I make this argument with a view that capitalism is not stable, and the points where capitalism is weakest offer opportunities for revolutionary action. John Holloway and his crack capitalism has opted to refer to these weak points within capitalist totality as its, quote, cracks. These cracks are varied and fluid, and my contention is that the greatest crack in the system of capitalism is the collective capacity to access the imagination for a better world, which leads to practices of resistance and rebellion. Once such rebellions scale up to a degree, they can become what I call ruptures, which pose a potential threat to the very system itself. End of footnote. Within the cracks of capitalism might emerge spaces for revolutionary deployment. Therefore, an immediate tactical objective is to locate the cracks, the open spaces within capitalist totality, and position them as spaces of revolutionary reproduction. Seize the state is no longer a sufficient battle cry. Perhaps it never was. Therefore, we should seize revolutionary space. Occupy Wall Street offered a concrete tactical example of how capitalism's cracks become ruptures. However, the decolonial critique of Occupy should not be sidestepped. The charge that Occupy Wall Street was insufficiently capable of addressing the larger occupation of indigenous lands and confronting the settler colonial state presents a valid critique, but this should be measured against the nascent political ambitions for total social transformation harbored within Occupy. As put by A.K. Thompson, quote, Although it often remained insensitive to the colonial experiment from which it remained inseparable, the Occupy movement's wish images revealed that regicide was its guiding star. And, had they reached it, they would have opened clear lines along which decolonization forces might have advanced. End quote. Footnote. Thompson's full argument is worth considering, highlighting how the charges against occupation rest on the view that it is the antithesis of decolonization. Thompson registers this argument as one of, quote, conceptual negation of siding with the representational antithesis of the thing we oppose, end quote. Thompson goes on to argue, quote, liberation owes nothing to negation. Instead, it is the fruit of reciprocity. Opposition to militarism calls on us to disavow class war about as much as our conviction that picket lines mean don't cross demands that we cede abortion clinics to the placard-wielding zealots who showed up first, end quote, and end footnote. Occupies encampments and public parks place priority on democratic process. Occupation as a tactic rested on the view that seized spaces could be refashioned into democratic places. For occupiers, public parks were small cracks in the advance of capitalist totality. Public space is merely the inverse of private space, as what is not private is publicly administered by the state and thus void of democratic control. However, the general population tends to view public spaces in a positive light, signaling their rough belief in the need for shared spaces. 
So Occupy Wall Street filled the ideological cracks with its own set of ideals, its own utopian project, and immediately sought to cultivate these cracks as spaces of deep democracy for the 99%. In this regard, quote, the space of Occupy was not only physical, but also symbolic, end quote. The cracks of public parks were used to confront localized fragmentation, but Occupy Wall Street also offered a glimpse on how to connect the cracks. Occupy went from being an isolated protest tactic in an obscure New York City park to spreading like wildfire across the country and around the globe. Park occupation had a strategic brilliance based on its simplicity, which ran as follows. We can turn our public park into a site of democracy, and so can you. It invited ordinary people to engage in the same type of activity. It wasn't seen as necessary to lobby one's congressperson or go through formal political channels to be active in politics. Instead, one could just move through the park and engage in political debate, deliberation, and decision-making. Prefigurative practices, such as setting up free clinics and libraries and experiments with sustainable farming, were also employed across the many physical sites of Occupy. Occupy Wall Street offers one view of how to create visible entry points for the public at large to enter into movement actions. Thus, Occupy temporarily seized spaces for revolutionary reproduction. The effort still suffered from prioritizing localized spaces of autonomy, which has historically hindered anarchist strategies. Still, through its successes and limitations, Occupy Wall Street provides many lessons, and one particular insight is on the need to permanently hold spaces of revolutionary reproduction. Other case histories and liberation struggles offer tangible strategies as well. The efforts made by MOVE, a black liberation group based in Philadelphia who emphasized communal ways of living and anarchist practices of local autonomy, the Zapatistas of Chiapas, Mexico, who embody a hybrid politics of indigeneity, anarchism, and Marxism, and have enlarged their zone of autonomy to the kind of revolutionary reproduction which carries possibilities, and the current and endangered struggles within Rojava, inspired in part by the political writings of Murray Bookchin. Each example contains many practical lessons to be used by other liberation movements, and within them all is a clear recognition over the importance of seizing space for revolutionary reproduction. Enlarging the Spaces of Reproduction Contemporary movements appear to be shifting in a direction which understands the importance of space. Kanishka Gunawardena observes, quote, The events of the Arab Spring and the Occupy movement revealed that space is both an essential mediation of politics and an unmediated object of political struggle, end quote. Spaces can become blocks of power, interlacing land, politics, and economics with prefigurative practices of care and democracy. By seizing space instead of states, such strategies do the work of creating communities bounded by more than their geographical or national character. They create the potential for an imagined community constituted by dreams for collective liberation. Footnote. Benedict Anderson, in Exploring the Making of Nationalism, defined nations as social constructions whereby people imagine themselves to belong in community to one another on the basis of their boundedness to the same nation-state. This is where the expression imagined communities was inspired by. In the footnote. One could frame this as neighborhood organizing. 
This has always been central for successful anti-capitalist campaigns, whether of an explicitly labor union front or project of dismantling racial oppression. Spaces of revolutionary reproduction, however, imply bigger spaces than neighborhoods. In his work on rebel cities, David Harvey repeats the concern that capitalist totality requires liberation movements take into account the question of scale. Quote, the plain fact is that certain problems only become visible at particular scales, and it is only appropriate that democratic decisions be made at those scales, end quote. Harvey's concern leads him to ponder the possibilities of organizing an entire city, surveying the history of urban rebellions spanning a vast terrain in time and space from Paris, Cairo, Cochabamba, and more. Harvey discovers that in times of urban uprisings, singular centers of activity are rare. More often, rebellions spread not only to close geographic locations, but across the whole globe. One example includes Paris 1968, which quickly spread to Chicago, Mexico City, Bangkok, and others. The local is a spark which can ignite global conflagrations, and Harvey's rebel cities propose the possibility of city after city, like dominoes, succumbing to the will of the people. Organizing entire cities. Let me move from the abstract to something more concrete. As a labor organizer, I've had opportunities to consider the above arguments in more precise detail as it pertains to union organizing. What follows is a preview of how unions can seize spaces of revolutionary reproduction and how through such activity, utopia can become filled with liberatory and mobilizing content. Stanley Aronowitz issued a convincing argument that the labor movement's current woes are not due to a lack in the number of unionized workers. Even with small union percentages in the public and private sector, there are millions of union members in the nation. But he says it's in fact due to a lack of radical imagination. Aronowitz urges the labor movement to embrace its radical roots, particularly its militancy and regular use of the strike as a tactic, but understands that the constraints on labor's collective imagination prevent its revitalization. A radical vision is not impossible if unions commit to reassessing their preconceptions. Unions have experienced a heavy blow in the Supreme Court decision Janus versus AFSCME, Local unions representing public workers saw immediate cuts in operating revenue, sometimes as high as 50% the day the decision came down. However, in a twist of irony so common amid the contradictions of capitalist modernity, Janus could prove to be a rupture which renders invisible more cracks in the system. Rather than posing a threat to the very survival of unions, Janus exposes the limits of one particular form of unionism, business unionism. Indeed, business unionism, the standard in organized labor today, has been a walking zombie for decades, unaware or perhaps in denial of its own undead condition. Now the necessary task is to lop off the zombie's head once and for all. Partly to explain the existential dread amid many a unionist today is their inability to imagine union models outside the narrowed parameters of wage increases and grievance filings. Described as gomperism or business unionism, this approach to union organizing is geared toward winning contracts at all costs and fixated on membership numbers without much consideration over what role members should have in their union. Gomperism, too, fails to acknowledge the fundamental conflict between capital and labor, assuming instead that a bargain can be brokered with capitalists. This analysis exposes why the prevailing political interventions made by organized labor today are narrowly focused on tweaking existing labor laws and abandoning any pretense of becoming politically independent of the Democratic Party. 
It is a shallow politics circumscribed by nationalistic allegiances and, at best, seeks to slightly improve the status quo. To obliterate business unionism, organized labor today needs to shift its mission from representation of its members to organizing as a class against the owners of capital. Footnote. To be clear, I'm not trying to propound a view of unionism that abandons all notions of service for members such as filing grievances and other representational configurations, nor do I maintain that in practice there is a clear and obvious binary between business unionism and social movement unionism. In reality, the broader labor movement is a mishmash of multiple organizing philosophies, worker militancy seeking its emergence across many locals, but the predominant attitude and practice is of a legacy owed most to Samuel Gompers and his accommodationist orientation toward capitalism. Labor union efforts must extend beyond the worksite. Bill Fletcher Jr. and Fernando Gapacine write that, quote, if class struggle is not restricted to the workplace, then neither should unions be, end quote. They conclude that unions should not limit their strategies to organizing workplaces or industries, but should organize entire cities. Jane McAlevey complements their framework by conceptualizing whole worker organizing, which shucks the narrow focus on workplace issues by recognizing that workers do not experience their lives in neatly broken up arenas. Struggles with childcare, housing needs, food insecurity, and more are all felt inside and outside the worksite. McAlevey's approach places importance on drawing on the whole lived experience of workers, where their social and familial relationships are sites upon which to draw organizing support. Broadening the horizon of where to organize also requires broadening conceptions of who qualifies as a worker. Quote, when we restore a sense of the social totality of class, writes Tithi Bhattacharya, we immediately begin to reframe the arena for class struggle. End quote. Under capitalist regimes, ideas of value are primarily quantifiable. Only what can be measured and held is considered valuable. Therefore, what is viewed as a form of labor, or productivity, has tended to ignore the labor of social reproduction, which is not solely invested in the production of things, but rather of human beings. Undertaken primarily by women, reproduction refers to child raising, which guarantees future labor supplies, food cultivation, care work, general housework, and emotional or interpretive labor, which are all necessary for reproducing social life. Opening up conceptions of what is work expands the imagination, allowing for light to be shined on other forms of invisibilized labor, such as prison labor disproportionately undertaken by black and brown working class people. Janae Bonsu, in an article for Dissent, urges us to, quote, imagine if prison laborers were entitled to a minimum wage, overtime pay, and workers' compensation when injured on the job, end quote. The outcome, they suggest, would effectively strike against the core of today's new Jim Crow. Bonsu argues that prison laborers should not be overlooked in unionization campaigns and persuades readers to understand if prison workers were seen as a centerpiece of organized labor strategy, the prospects for revolution would dramatically increase. Here as well, Bonsu offers a view of finding ways to connect the cracks between different movement groups. Shifting strategic organizing at the scale of a city and inclusion of non-unionized workers is possible if organized labor becomes more reflexive in understanding its own self-identity. Currently, 45% of union membership in the United States is made up of folks who identify as women, yet mainstream commentators rarely consider the labor movement as part of the feminist movement. Additionally, black workers are more likely to be members of a union than white workers. These two realities alone provide the potential for the union movement to move towards self-identifying as feminist and anti-racist. Indeed, the future of the labor movement hinges on it becoming a movement guided by anti-racist feminism.
labor's identity against the enclosure of history. One starting point for changing labor's self-identity is within the annals of its own history. Writes Walter Benjamin, in every era, the attempt must be made anew to wrest tradition away from a conformism that is about to overpower it, end quote. Much like other liberation movements, the story of organized labor has often been watered down to fit the narrative as shaped by the AFL-CIO or other liberal commentators wishing to claim the entirety of workers' victories in the United States as their own. But labor unions are not the singular story of craft unionism, stained as it is with racist and sexist past and present practices. It is also the story of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers in Detroit who advocated for autonomous workers' organizations to fight both racist bosses and racist unions. It is also the story of the Industrial Workers of the World, formed in 1905 to advocate for revolutionary industrial unionism, informed by socialist and anarchist politics and expressly open to black workers, women workers, and immigrant workers. And it is also the story of the early Congress of Industrial Organizations, or the CIO, who staged 477 sit-down strikes in 1937, helping inspire the later sit-ins launched by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, during the Civil Rights Movement. Organized labor is the totality of workers who have collectively attempted to shape the conditions of their work. Therefore, it is these stories and so many more. Beyond internal demographics, which do not in themselves determine political identities, the process of shaping all of organized labor into an anti-racist feminist force is already underway. Beginning in late February 2018 and spanning multiple states across the country, including West Virginia, Arizona, Kentucky, Oklahoma, Colorado, and North Carolina, public school teachers launched a series of successful strikes against austerity and privatization schemes. Not recognized enough is how these strikes have been led primarily by women and, as Tithi Bhattacharya argues, constitute a feminist project. Quote, these strikes are for wages and benefits, but they arise from a social landscape scoured by gender and racial inequalities. The leaders of the strikes are thus not simply workers shaped only by conditions of work. Gender marks them. These are women fighting for dignity and security in the most commodious sense of those terms. Their gender is not incidental to this strike. Their narratives of fear about their families and health are not backstories to what is merely a wage struggle. It is time to consider these backstories as central and constitutive of the strike wave, end quote. Women's strikes are spanning the globe, generating prospects for a new wave of international feminist struggle, as argued by Chinsia Arutza. The new wave represents a deepening of movement knowledge, hitherto turning on a fallacy which viewed social struggles as separate formations, i.e. there is the labor movement, then the feminist movement, then the environmental movement, etc., Writes Cintia Rutza, quote, within this framework, one wondered how to unite these movements with each other. In her estimation, this new wave resolves the question through understanding these struggles as already interwoven, resulting in the formation of, quote, feminist class struggle, end quote. Other encouraging developments are taking place for the radical imagination to reinsert itself into organized labor. Since the 1990s, the rise of worker centers has increased from approximately 10 locations to over 250. This is a welcome development, as worker centers operate to encourage the creation of cooperative businesses, recreational spaces, educational support services, and more. Efforts to build worker centers have been primarily taken up by the undocumented workers in the United States, again highlighting the need for a more reflexive self-identity within organized labor as a necessary means for channeling resources and mutual aid into sites outside of standard labor arenas. Where some segments of organized labor have made strategic advances toward liberation struggles, it must now become understood by the entirety of unions how their fight contains the aforementioned struggles, along with fights for cleaner air, better schools, against water privatization, against climate change, or for fairer housing policies, as these represent as Tithi Bhattacharya writes, quote, social needs of the working class that are essential for its reproduction, end quote.
spaces of utopia. Large unions waste millions upon millions of dollars in member dues every year on electoral political efforts which over the long run have only weakened organized labor. In capturing spaces for revolutionary reproduction, imagine if unions shifted the money they dump into the Democratic Party toward the creation of cooperative living establishments. For union members, they would have access to fixed rents in areas where their neighbors are their union comrades. Yes, they could begin seeing them as comrades instead of coworkers. They could also link these residential areas for union members with land trusts for sustainable farming, along with recreational centers for children and families. Such initiatives could go a tremendous way in capturing housing and food security for millions of workers and families across the country. Just think of the additional time people could have for engaging in civic matters without having to worry as much about their housing and food needs. More time as well to marinate in imaginative explorations of what else could and should be. From this position, union members could launch their own political initiatives rooted to local conditions. Alexander Kolokotronis issues a persuasive appeal for such a political project to center around, quote, municipal syndicalism, end quote, focusing on the possibilities of using local municipal political levers as launch pads for people's assemblies, participatory democracy, and cooperative programs as effective means for, quote, channeling resources into centering the voice and power of women and people of color, end quote. Colocotronis argues that labor unions could become central amid a broader municipalist agenda, and I contend that if unions were to embrace this strategic move, it could bolster their already developing revolutionary spaces with political power, which would serve as a buffer between their communities and the larger state without necessarily entering into fruitless direct combat with the state. Organizing at the scale of cities would enable union members to see connections between their own particular experiences of capitalist domination and its effects on people outside their workplaces and occupations. Potentially, this could motivate bigger and more sustained efforts at unionizing the non-unionized, particularly for workers whose work is commonly devalued or rendered invisible, specifically fast food workers, sex workers, undocumented workers, and imprisoned workers. Taking on such ambitious efforts likely feels overwhelming. However, I have been heartened through experience to witness how quickly these strategies can gain traction at the local union level and subsequently cascade outward. The union I work for currently in Oregon has shifted toward addressing housing needs as one of its primary issues. Calls have been made for creating a hardship fund to address housing and other financial needs, stimulating the development of union cooperative housing, and advocating for improvements in renters' rights at the legislative level. Importantly, the union did not exclude non-members or outsiders from initial strategic sessions, which sparked the creation of a local union for tenants. Additionally, through communications with affiliated statewide unions and efforts taken at an annual convention of the state federation, affordable housing has become a salient issue for unions across Oregon. In fact, at the University of Oregon, the Graduate Employee Union, inspired no doubt by the local union who employs me, submitted a housing proposal during their current negotiations demanding that the university create policies surrounding housing that would improve the entire quality of life for their union members. And this is just on the topic of housing. When one begins to contemplate the practical outcomes of realizing their union's housing goals, it is not long before they consider how the housing should be accessible, safe, a haven of anti-racist and anti-sexist activity, and more. The utopian implications hover nearby, soon to be articulated. Another current example of how union militancy can gain traction and win is found in the formation of the first fast food workers union in the country, the Burgerville Workers Union. After countless years of union experts lamenting the unorganizable condition of fast food industries, it is quite tremendous to see these workers accomplish the impossible, and no less through the affiliation of the industrial workers of the world, an overtly anti-capitalist and revolutionary labor union. BVWU's accomplishments are partly due to their recognition that mutual aid and whole worker organizing are keys to victory. Evidence of this is found in their fight against Burgerville corporates banning of Black Lives Matter and pro-DACA buttons worn by workers. 
their bus fare sharing and childcare programs, strikes called against verbal and sexual harassment, and their regular effectiveness in getting community allies to boycott the company until it cedes to union demands. Strategic pursuits such as outlined above also benefit from the fact that they operate at the level of daily life. The experiences of workplace domination shape a person's expectations and effectively circumscribe the imagination over what types of change are possible. Victories against the boss are transformative for workers. They cultivate a sense of new possibilities and openings previously viewed as impossible. The task, then, is to expand the arenas where victories take place. In this way, what may begin as a victory against landlords and project for cooperative housing contains the potential of enlarging its imaginative capacities to become the pathway where recognition is made that cooperative houses on colonized lands is insufficient and nothing less than a global revolution against settler colonial capitalist heteropatriarchy will do. Spaces of revolutionary reproduction are not simply about minimizing daily struggles, but are efforts where, quote, the production of space becomes a non-alienating, radical democratic praxis, end quote. Such imaginations work best when they create linkages across movement struggles, exposing clear lines of understanding that such struggles are and have always been entwined. These spaces allow ordinary people to become organizers of a better world where, as Walida Imarisha teaches, by, quote, using their everyday realities and experiences of changing the world, they can form the foundation of the fantastic and, we hope, build a future where the fantastic liberates the mundane, end quote. We have inherited a world of dueling utopias, my hope is that the seizure of spaces for revolutionary reproduction can put liberation movements in a position to win this battle.